and welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman, and with me is... It's Jordan Drake from Camera Store TV. Hey, Jordan's back. Cameron couldn't make it tonight, but Jordan's here in our holiday tradition. I think this actually the last time I was on this show was last year's best and worst of the year wrap up. So uh, yeah, it's an annual tradition at this point. Yeah, well, I, th- I think we even have three years. Did we get every year? I, hopefully we didn't miss any. I didn't check before we started recording. <laughs> but, but it's kind of the funnest topic for me because it's you, you can cover everything that was interesting all at once. And honestly, 2017 was like one of the most interesting years for, for camera gear ever. There is so much to talk about. Yeah, it's a huge transition year in a lot of different ways. So uh, yeah, let's let's get going because there's a lot to talk about. We could, Actually, I could have just had like a whole year of gear of the year because there's probably too <laughs> too much to, to get through. But um, let's start uh, not at the top. I, I sent you here. I'm going to send you that the like kind of updated list to move things around just so we're looking right. at the same thing. Perfect. And um we don't do this in a really formal way where we like pick a winner, which is what Jordan does in his uh, drunken version, uh, which you can see on camera store TV. Yeah. We recorded it last night. So I'm in recovery mode right now. Yeah. And that's kind of more fun in a way to have like an award show, but I, I just don't want to be that organized. So, well, and it's nice to go a little more long form too. You know, when you're doing an award show style, it's a sentence or two about everything here. We can actually delve into it a little bit. Yeah. This might turn into an hour or two about everything. Cause uh, you know, there's <laughs> a lot. So uh, on my list, Jordan, you'll see that at the top, I've got the cameras, but let's push that back. All right. That, that's like the most exciting thing, right? Like let's save that thunder. Yeah. Top cameras. And you'll have to add anything on your side that I missed, but okay. that's coming at the end. So uh, let's actually start with something that um, I, I know maybe you pay a little less attention to than I do, but everybody uses, it's important to everybody. And I know a lot of people care about it and that's uh, the phone category. Okay. It was also a great year for camera phones. Like they are Surprise, surprise, just like every other year, they're getting better and better. And um, right. there's just so much great stuff has, has happened lately. Well, and this was right there near the top of our list is this explosion of computational photography, which, you know, you kind of hit a wall physically with what you can do with a smartphone. So they're just getting smarter and smarter about what they're doing internally to make up that difference right now. And what, what I've been saying to everybody about uh, what phone to buy is that... The, the challenge is that they are all really great. Like the, there isn't a clear best. So that's maybe even part of why I don't want to do the award show version. I, lo- I was looking through DP reviews, top everything, and they gave it to the Google Pixel 2, yep. which totally makes sense. It's the most interesting change and it touches on that computational photography that you're talking about. Like it, it shows us the way of the future more than any of these other phones. What, what are you shooting with, by the way? Like, what do you have the most experience with? Uh, I'm an iPhone guy, but I have nothing current. I'm still running like an ancient iPhone 6. So okay. uh, I have no input in this particular category. I certainly follow it, but right. uh, I have no hands-on experience with anything. This is on you, buddy. What I've been testing this year is the, the iPhone 10, the iPhone 8, the Samsung S8, and the Google Pixel 2. That's where I've really put my time. And um, I know that the Note 8 the by, by the Galaxy Note 8 is rated slightly higher than the Galaxy S8, but mm-hmm. that's not what I used. So uh, you'll have to kind of swap them. I know they still treat images in similar ways. It's just a little better. Right. And it has portrait mode. 
Yeah, which I think is something everybody's kind of woken up to in the last, well, I mean, going back to the iPhone 7. And I think it's one of the big important changes that needed to happen to smartphone photography. Yeah. And that's a place that Google really did win, as, as far as I'm concerned, which I was right. so surprised by. They are doing it all with a single lens. Everybody else has dual lenses. And, and somehow Google decided that they could do it with just dual pixels. And they really did it's able to cut out subjects much more than any others, much more accurately than the others. I find the iPhone blows it a lot. Like I, it, right. as somebody that has a big SLR and I'm used to having bokeh in the background, mm. you know, I, the fact that it looks terrible 30% or half the time, at least half the time it gets it completely right. wrong. I just can't handle that. It really frustrates me. Yeah. And that's certainly what I've seen as well is that the pixel, like the iPhone, I'm getting pretty good at picking out what's an iPhone portrait mode image at this point, mm -hmm. uh, where the pixel too has totally uh, stumped me a couple times. Yeah. I was really surprised. What's also interesting about the pixel too, is that it's, it's cutting it out more accurately, but it also does a less realistic blur or even a less realistic cutout. Like it, part of its calculation is it's looking for a subject because Google recognizes, especially people. It's like, okay, if it's a person, they are most likely the subject. So I'm going to give them preference even more than the depth values. So right. I bet it could do a bunch of this work without even the dual pixels. I mean, I'm just kind of making that up, but from what it's doing, it kind of looks to me like it's like, Hey, I see human. I see the edges of human. That's the foreground. Everything right. else blurry. Um, so there's less levels of depth but it's very accurate about defining those kind of two levels that it has. Well, and I think a lot of this goes back, I think it was a couple of years ago where they were saying Google had some algorithm that was analyzing like 15,000 common photographs or something like that, uh, which has nothing to do with how it's depth mapping. So I think that's exactly what's going on there for this to be so effective so often is it's just referencing a huge number of photos. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also the best with the portrait mode by far. I really expected the iPhone 10 to do a great job of this because it has the IR sensor and it's capturing tons of depth data, but the, the cutting out is just really challenging for it. It does a bad job. I never use it. And I, I'm probably never going to start using it. Well, and what's interesting with this is, I mean, we can really see the way forward with it like this is a processing limitation at this point. It's going to get consistently better. Yeah. And as more and more people are using these features, you know, that feedback loop is going to be enormous because there's a hell of a lot of people shooting with this right now. So the next generation I would expect is going to be, you know, four times as good. Yeah. And I've also, every time I talk about the Pixel 2, I have to make a note that there are some times that it's uh, kind of Mm, I'd say glitched out, uh, mm -hmm. especially in strong tungsten. Like it's a, if it's a fully tungsten room, sometimes it'll go to like a, a strong yellowy green, which is so strange and, huh. and unusable. I mean, it really can ruin images and it's not common, but when it happens, it's really frustrating and there isn't an easy way to fix it. So, well, in the pixel two, that is giving you raw support, isn't it? Yes. I don't, I don't use raw on any of them. I yeah. mean, I, I, a, I assume they all, yeah, I think they all do at this point, but the workflow would just be more of a pain in the ass than it's worth to me because I, I just don't want to deal with the extra storage. Right. Of course. But, um, and then, yeah, I'd like to touch on the, on the Samsung as well. I mean, I, I shouldn't neglect them. They, uh, came out first, so they're the oldest phone at this point. So maybe it's just least exciting, but they're really, 
really good at all. Like anybody just choosing your phone, don't do it based on the camera. If it's between the flagships, do it based on the operating system or like the, yeah. using the phone because you're going to – the camera will come with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and they're also competitive at this point. Yeah. Also, yeah. In, in iPhone, I much prefer the Photos app and the camera app. So Yeah. I, I get My wife is Android. I'm iOS, so oh, I get so you bounce both. back and forth. Yeah, I see both, and I, that's the reason I'm still on an iPhone. Yeah, that's always a software for me. All right, let's move along. So this is in a very weird order. Okay, the next one I wrote down is Gimbals. Okay. Because this is specific to me. This is um, something I've been shopping for and uh, recently bought one of. Uh, and it's also just a big part of shooting video. Like everybody has a gimbal now and anybody that doesn't know the word for some reason, it's the thing that stabilizes your camera when you yeah. walk and move around. Kind of the replacement for the glide cam, but it's electronic now. So you don't need the same level of skill to get good results with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, adding this, this is probably totally selfish to add this because it's not like it was a big year for gimbals. I feel like everything that came out was an evolution. Nothing totally changed the game. Yeah. Um, and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm still kind of frustrated with where it is. So we've been talking and I bought the Moza Air recently. Yeah, which is the one I'm using as well. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'd seen videos from Brendan Lee, who, um, his name Brandon or Brendan on, on YouTube or Vimeo, go check him out. He has amazing gimbal work. And he was like, this is my new one. I'm going to switch from the Zayun. 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 Okay. We got it. Yeah. We got to settle on a pronunciation here. I'm probably completely wrong on that. I'm just more confident than you. No, yeah. The confidence sells it. Oh, totally. So yeah, we'll, we'll go with the Zayun. He had switched from it. So I loved his work. I'm like, okay, I'll trust that. And, and you're using it too. Um, but you know what? With all of them, they are still so buggy and like, yeah. and not polished. Uh, it's really frustrating. And even using the the Ronin, I, I did a few more shoots with the Ronin M this year, and even it, which is generally considered the gold standard right now, mm-hmm. is still so buggy. There are constantly weird things with it, and you're fighting with it for the whole shoot. And like, none of this is perfect. Like, how have we not worked out all these bugs yet? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a slow process. I still find, like, uh, with a Ronin, I'm 95% of the time solid with that guy, uh, where the handheld units are like my 80% solution, you know. Um, they are certainly a little buggier, but they're so much more convenient. Floating them is so much quicker. And I'm hearing amazing things about the new Movi Pro right now, but the price on that's just prohibitive and everybody that's what the pro stands for movie prohibitive yeah exactly but everybody remembers what happened with the first movie it came out everyone was really excited and then the original ronin came out a few months later at a quarter of the price Uh, so i'd be worried about that happening again but we're definitely waiting for the the next major software development with these because they're all using the same basic software right now you know they're all coming out of china i'm sure it's the same three engineers are working for everybody's software well what i was telling myself too is like i'm gonna wait till dji does a a single-handed gimbal and then i'll buy that but i gave up on that when i started using the the ronin more and i'm like oh wait it's not the best of the best that i had met like it's still even they have issues still so yeah, the kinks are still there for sure. But yeah. again, uh, the trade-off I always look at it is, yeah, you might need two takes on a shot or something like that, but it beats the hell out of balancing a steady cam for 45 minutes before right. everything. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I'm still going to use it. The thing is, I still get great shots. Like, I get shots that I'm excited about and yeah. proud of and, and that 
that add to it. But there's also times that like it totally takes away from the shoot. Like I was mm-hmm. I was doing all this, I was shooting a bunch of B-roll the other day for YouTube video. And then, um, you know, it was okay. And then I was watching people's videos that evening and I was seeing some of them like, this stuff is so much better that's handheld. Like these other people that just didn't have to spend that time fighting with their gear and were right. able to just control the camera more precisely got so much better results, but it's also different. So the, the videos I was watching were handheld with, with, um, like red cameras, right? Like big, basically right. bigger, heavier cameras in mine's Sony and handheld looks different on a small camera. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is why we still see people throwing big shoulder rigs and stuff like that for these tiny little cameras. Uh, it's just a different feel to everything. And, you know, certainly I'm not using a gimbal as much as I used to because I've got a GH5 with the built-in stabilizer. And I'm really curious which direction the technology is going to move faster. Is it going to be that in-body IS gets incredibly good in the next generation, yes. even past where we are now? Or are the gimbal is going to be the next major step? It's tough to tell because the jump that we saw this year uh, with in-body image stabilization was just staggering. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's nice that they're racing. Like, I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to see them both trying to get there as fast as they can. Yeah. And physically, you can't move a sensor and a lens as much as you can move a gimbal. So for running and stuff, gimbals will always have the edge. But for controlled movements, I'm certainly using a gimbal less than I was before. Right. Yeah. How do you feel? You don't use big cameras that often, so maybe you don't have a direct comparison. But like, do you feel like the motion between a small stabilized camera is competitive with that sort of um, natural gravity stabilization from a larger, heavier camera? I think they come across very differently, especially at wide angle. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny, even though like the amount of movement in the frame with a big camera can sometimes, you know, it's, it's more movement when you're actually looking at how much your frame is shifting, but it does seem a little more natural. A Mm -hmm. lot of the time I find Uh, the only exception to that is if you can get your small camera up to your eye. I found, I find it's quite similar. Right. It's when you're waving that mirrorless camera around in front of your face, you know, off in the distance. Yeah. You see the, yeah, I know what you mean. And it's, it's really, I think more of that, like, you know, roll and stuff like that, that's coming in. If you've got something up to your eye or on your shoulder, it's really just going to be up, down, left, right, back and forth, you know? Well, okay. So I know most of our listeners always get bored when we talk about video. I'm sorry. Too long. So, uh, my next topic was video cameras. Oh, so, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a surprise question then instead, yes. can you talk to me about entry level cameras? Uh, like when, cause this is something I don't, I don't know about. And it's a question I get a lot, but I'm bad at recommending like yeah. what, what do you recommend for, I don't know, there's sort of two levels. I don't know how in depth you want to go, but like I could see a, you know, sub 1000, like 500 to 1000 and a, 1,000 to 1,500. Like what falls into those ranges for you this year? Well, this year, I mean, the sub 1,000, I was actually really kind of surprised by the uh, Canon Rebel SL2, which, you know, I'm not a fan of general, like for the last few years, I've been saying entry-level people steer clear of DSLRs. Um, I do find they're a little harder to learn with because with the mirrorless camera, you can preview your exposure and everything before you take the shot. But this camera is weird because it's got that amazing dual pixel autofocus swivel screen, all the stuff from the uh, 80D, but in a really tiny body. It feels to me like a mirrorless camera that they plugged an optical viewfinder on the top of, which is a really interesting way to shoot. So, you know, if you like that optical finder or you're shooting 
you know, really harsh, high contrast scene or something, you can jump over there. But most of the time, weirdly enough, you're going to be holding it away from your eye using the touchscreen and the camera operates, focuses, does a much better job in that mode. But I thought it was an interesting select uh, option because then you've got access to all those Canon lenses. So, mm-hmm. you know, your drawback would be it's a mirrorless camera without a viewfinder, but with the hugest lens selection currently available, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it has a touchscreen. I didn't actually realize that. Yeah. It's the same exact same interface as an ADD if you're okay. uh, shooting in live view. So touchscreen, dual pixel autofocus, wow. great continuous tracking. I want to touch on that a bit on uh, touchscreens and how important they've gotten to me really quickly, basically because yeah. my, my 5d Mark four, uh, it's, it's something that always frustrates me when I use my Sony, which is a, a pre touchscreen Sony's the A7R2. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now there, there is touching on the A7R3, correct? It's bad touching. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not the kind of touching you want. Yeah, yeah. And the A9, I think I tried it on the A9 and it's like, it, it just feels like the olden days before, yeah. you know, pre smartphone touch interface, which it kind of makes you not want to use it. Whereas like they, they do it so well in the Canon that you start getting addicted to it. Yeah, absolutely. And same thing with the Panasonics, which is my main system. Canon and Panny are the two that take touch interfaces seriously. Right. So uh, yeah, for a consumer camera, I mean, you, the first time you pass a camera to someone who's not, who hasn't been shooting for the last decade, their first instinct is always to start poking at the screen because that's what our smartphones have conditioned us to. And I think it's so frustrating for those sub thousand dollar cameras when they don't have that interface. So I've got, I've got another one you're going to have to fill in the name for um, yes. that I, I recommended to like two or three people, but I can't think of the name. It's the Olympus something, something 10. What am I thinking of? Yeah. So there's the, the EM 10 uh, version three just came out. The 10 two was before that. Okay. Uh, small body, really nice image quality on it. And they do have their pixel shift, which is really cool technology. I don't know if it makes that much sense for a beginner because it has to be a perfectly static scene. You got to be shooting on a tripod with it. But uh, what I really like with the EM10 III is they've Olympus interfaces have been historically some of the worst ever. Like it looks like an old DOS video game, basically. Uh, super confusing terminology. Silent mode was just the icon of a heart. We don't know. We haven't gotten to the bottom of why <laughs> that is. But then with the three, they've really done a great job of segmenting everything into what kind of pictures are you trying to take? And then they put a single button on for Pro. And when you touch that, it's all of your advanced options, the pixel shift modes. Um, they do a wonderful exposure stacking mode where uh, it would be like doing a bulb exposure, but you see the image build in front of you. And then you just tell it when to stop if you're doing star trails or long exposures or something. It's genius stuff. But they hide that now off in the pro menu. So you've got it's got to be something you're looking for creatively where so often working at the store, I have people come in with an Olympus camera and they're like, everything stopped working because I played with this one feature three months ago. Uh, So I think it's really smart. They didn't add a ton of stuff to the spec this year. They just streamlined the interface. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the more important improvement. Okay. You got to help me with Fuji a little bit here too, because um, yeah, I'm just, I don't keep up with the numbers. I owned one Fuji and I haven't bought another one. Tell me what the the good Fujis are right now. Like what's everybody in love with? Right. So Basically, Fuji's entry level doesn't matter. It's their mid-range that's really important. What prices are we talking about with mid-range, too? Because I'm going to add a category in my notes. Yeah, mid-range, we're talking like 1000 to 1500 Okay. Uh, so they've got their X-T20, which was actually our number three best camera of the year. 
uh, came out right at the start of 2017. And uh, you hear about the X-T2 a lot. It's one of the most refined mirrorless cameras out there. And this is all the best stuff from that camera, just with a smaller physical viewfinder. It's still the same resolution and uh, no weather sealing on it, but great focus, beautiful image quality on it. And they added that touchscreen interface that I find so important. I did just watch your XC20 video preparing for this. So I, I was just watching you guys talk about oh, it on cool. YouTube. And um, it does look really great. It, I get the feeling with Fujis that like they are meant more for uh, a serious hobbyist. Do, yes. do you see pros using Fujis at this point? Like has that, has that become a thing? Uh, we've seen it for sure. Um, a lot of actually a lot of event people really like them, I think, again, because they're sexy cameras and you're around a lot of people, yeah, right? They look so good. Yeah. Um, but they do a lot of stuff I really love um, because one of the biggest limitations with mirrorless is battery life. So if you're a pro who really knows what you're doing, I love that everything's external. So before you even power the camera up, when you're walking into a new lighting situation, you've got your camera set up where you want it without powering it up. You've got your shutter speed aperture, ISO focus mode, yeah, yeah, that's where great. you can it to something like the Sony cameras, which have a lot of great customizable function on it, but the camera is essentially useless until you power it up and start adjusting those, you know, um, non-dedicated buttons. One thing I've been recommending a lot, like the, probably the most common camera I recommended is one I haven't spent any real time with, mm -hmm. and that's the Sony a6500. Yeah. It just kind of fits what the, a lot of people need, in my opinion, yeah. and is something you can grow into and that can be unexpectedly good in a lot of ways. So how do you feel about the A6500? Am I, am I guiding people in the right direction? Yeah. Well, I love, like I had a 6,000, I had a 6,300. I didn't wind up going with the 6,500, but it's the most well-rounded camera by far they've put out in that line. The major, honestly, the biggest limitation when you're recommending that to people is they still don't have a good, inexpensive standard zoom. Um, they have a Twelve hundred dollar um, sixteen to seventy Zeiss. That's a very nice f four lens, but that's it. Uh, they have a terrible sixteen to fifty lens, and no third parties have really stepped up yet. So that's it's tough because they've got beautiful lenses on their full frame bodies right now, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. have to flesh out their crop bodies. Um, it's a real limitation when you're looking at these beautiful little you know fifteen hundred. I think it's seventeen hundred dollars for that guy right now. But to get a good mid-range zoom on it, you know, you're looking at basically the full-frame lenses, which are right. that's, yeah, you know, that's not what you want. Two grand, and it they're huge and heavy. The, yeah, it just makes sense for the the body that you're using there. And like, what I end up using on my Sony is the 28 millimeter 2.0, like for everything. Yeah. I almost never change it. I'm amazed how useful that's been. Yeah, and um, and then I also got an ultra wide for it. But to, that, I have a skew there because to me, Sony is all video. So this is why I haven't thought about it in the way maybe I should for, for photo professionals or, or serious hobbyists. Um, yeah, well, and that's why uh, when I was shooting with it, I had a, I, my favorite setup was a Sigma 19, a Sony 35 and a Sony 50 because they didn't have any good zooms covering that range that were crop only and everything was small and sharp if you did that. Um, and that's why for so many people, like my dad was just looking for a mid range mirrorless camera and I said, go Fuji. Because they have that beautiful 18 to 55, 28 to 4, which is one of the best standard zooms ever made. Do you have anything else in that price range that like really needs to not be forgotten? Uh, the Panasonic G85, I think, came out 
this year. And it's just a spectacular, well-rounded video photo body. Amazing stabilizer in that, but it has all the stuff with uh, in terms of handling that we really want. It has the flip screen, um, great dedicated buttons on it, a very fast refreshing EVF, and it's like a thousand bucks. This also reminded me of a, like a category we should talk about a bit that's before we get to full video cameras is just vlogging cameras in general. Do you have a go-to that you're telling everybody what they should buy when they walk into the store? Uh, generally, I'm, I'm recommending either the Panasonic G7 as a very entry-level one or the uh, G85 or my two well, I'm general more, recommendations. Uh, yeah, I'm more interested in the in the upper end. I, I, want, I want vlogs to look amazing. So, you know, I, I have like a, wait, what is it called? G7X? Is that the one? Oh, yeah. But to me now, like a, a real vlogging camera has become something that has to have an onboard mic, for example. It has to have, still needs flat profiles. Like I don't want it to look like vlog footage. Right. Um, so like to me, if I was starting from, if I hadn't bought the Sony, I have the a6500 is really appealing. Um, yeah. Except for its lack of flip out screen. Yeah, I think that's the big drawback to all these. And it's funny, we were just um, kind of doing like a Japan tour talking to a lot of these companies and how no one's made a small body with a fully articulating screen, a mic jack and a headphone jack is baffling uh, to me. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, we were, we were having this conversation at the store the other day about like, just why isn't there a great like targeted at vloggers camera? Yeah. Nobody checks all the boxes. There's not that many boxes too. There's five or six, you know. Does, it doesn't take a lot, but just something that's really meant to be the, like, this is the camera that we know that Casey Neistat will buy and then a million other people will buy because he's using it. Yeah, exactly. Like the GH5 is, you know, really what a lot of those higher end guys are looking at, but we need to find something in like the $1,500 range and something yeah. smaller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the size is an important part of it too. It has to be easily handheld. That's why you know, the like a 6,500 with a flip out screen is pretty close, but yep. Yeah. That's, I think that would be the perfect body if it had a fully articulating screen and a touch screen. Totally. Uh, I'm looking forward to testing the new Canon's got their new G one X three with an APS-C sensor. It's a little compact. Yeah. I heard about it. Haven't looked into it much. Yeah. I, we're going to go shoot that in the new year. I'm very curious about that, but we haven't tested it yet. So it didn't make our list. Right. Right. Cool. Um, okay. Let's go into, Full on video cameras now. This All is right. this is an exciting part to me because I like drooling over these a lot. Like with photo cameras, I kind of own what I own, so I don't spend as much time reading with the new ones. But hey, I don't have a fancy video camera yet, so I, I look at all the new ones a lot. And I'm just going to burn through the list real quick, and then yeah. let's kind of go over them. Okay, uh, what, cool. I, what I wrote down here is the Canon C200, mm-hmm. the Panasonic EVA1, the Panasonic GH5 the Sony A7R III, and the Sony A9. Yeah. Did I miss anything? No, those are the big ones. And? Uh, so what do you? What have you been most excited about? I mean, for me, I grabbed a GH5. I love the camera to death because um, I am looking for a small body that can do everything. And this is the most fully specced, compact, you know, mirrorless camera that's ever been released. So uh, it really fit the bill for me. Like I mentioned, the stabilizer changes the way I shoot. I'm not using a gimbal all the time. And what not a lot of people are talking about is the uh, electronic viewfinder. Uh, out of these cameras that you've got on this list here, four of them are using this new 3.6 million dot EVF, mm-hmm. which makes all the difference in the world. I'm not punching in to pull focus, things like that nearly as often. I can actually tell where my focus is without 
pulling on peaking or zooming in or anything like that. And that's been probably the biggest change for me shooting this year. Would you still take the GH5 over the A7R 3 and why? Uh, a couple the stabilizer is still better on it. Okay. Of course you get the um 10-bit recording on it, which honestly, the 8-bit from the Sony is very good. But when you're really grading a high contrast scene with a lot of highlights, I do like the way things hold together with the 10-bit files Mm -hmm. better. And the nice thing is, if I ever was shooting a commercial gig and they're like, we need broadcast delivery, it's broadcast certified, which the Sony isn't because it's an 8-bit camera. You get 4K slow motion, uh, which is awesome. It'll do 4K 60 or uh, 180 continuous recording at 1080 as well, uh, which is really sweet. Can you remind me the Sony's limitations in that area? Yeah, so 4K is 30 as a cap, so no real slow-mo when you're shooting 4K, and 120 frame per second in 1080. Okay, and uh, A9 is the same? Uh, A9 is uh, yet the same, but the 120 image is actually quite a bit better on the R3 we found. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then if we look at the higher end, which is a totally different price range, the the C200 and the EVA1 were two really exciting cameras. I mean, for a while it was just the FS7 and, you know, maybe the FS5 a little bit. And um, now, I mean, I the, the C200 has really captured my eye and especially going back to the touchscreen thing, like touchscreen autofocus yep. Um, or just really usable autofocus is so much of the reason that this is the camera that I I drool over. Well, and it's it's a really frustrating camera. I call this the most bipolar camera I've ever seen because you have this amazing touchscreen tracking focus, which works unbelievably well. Um, they also have this manual focus fine tune that uses the same system, which if you're pulling focus and you're just a little hair out, but it thinks it knows where it's going, it'll just micro adjust it for you. Wow. So it's perfect. That's so uh, cool. And it's, it's almost invisible and it works so well. So you have something like that that makes it a really easy camera to work with. But then internally, it's either shooting that same 8-bit oh, 4K I that know. you're getting on the Sony or RAW. Yeah. There's this huge, you know, gap of, you know, broadcast deliverables that this thing can't work on. For that, you've got to go to the C300 Mark II, which doesn't have the touchscreen dual pixel. So it, it's, yeah, they're really trying to make sure that you're using one camera for one type of work. And it's kind of frustrating. Well, but, but so the thing is, I they have promised a AVC or whatever, like a... um you know, a mid-range one in 2018, right? Like that that's going to happen? It's going to happen. But uh, what I keep getting here, heard confirmed over and over, News Shooter uh, has been saying is we're not going to get a 10-bit on that. It's going to be an 8-bit uh, uh, 422, which is okay. nicer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we've kicked out 8-bit 422 signals out of DSLRs for a long time. And very rarely do you see any real quality difference. Right, yeah. I- uh, I don't know. I mean, I I could kind of live with uh, maybe. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I could. Like, am I going to get more dynamic range than out of an A7R3? Uh, not really. No. Yeah. Um, the shadows are certainly a little bit cleaner. Um, so, you know, less dynamic range numerically, but a little bit more in terms of actual usable dynamic range. And in, in RAW, I would get a little more, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, same yeah. benefits you'd see in, on the photo side of it. And yeah, the RAW is absolutely gorgeous out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for RAW, the file sizes are manageable. Like they're enormous. It's, I think, eight minutes to 128 gig card. Yeah. But compared to some of the RAW formats out there, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. I just, if, if I have it, I know I won't be shooting RAW and that's so much of the point. So uh, I'm going to have to wait and see what they do. 
But if you're not shooting for a network, like the 8-bit is still so good off that camera. Most people are never going to notice. Well, but what know? I would hate about it, though, is I know that I'm losing a few stops in, in the highlights. You know, like I don't want it to look like a 5D. That's what I'm afraid yeah. of. Right. And what, what like, does it? It doesn't. No, the image coming off it is still, uh, you know, it, it's very, it really reminds me of when we were shooting 4K 8-bit on an FS5. And I was quite happy with that camera but yeah if someone's skin tones were getting too close to the top and i started to stretch the color one direction or the other it didn't have the latitude there that it did have in the mid-tones and that's when i really start to hurt with an 8-bit codec right uh, I, I want to touch on the panasonic a little bit too because i know it's it, it's a great camera a lot of people are really excited about the, yeah. the lack of autofocus makes it kind of boring to me because i yep. just i know how much i would use it um, mm-hmm. are, are you still hyped on it well, I'm actually, once we're done this conversation, I'm going to go and post our first episode shot on the Evo One. Oh, I can't uh, wait. Yeah. So um, I, I fought with it a little bit because um, there's no viewfinder and it's one of the worst screens I've ever seen since a Blackmagic camera. It's incredibly reflective. Um, so I was out shooting at midday with it and I couldn't see the screen, even with the hood. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few camera angles where I was throwing my coat over the top of the camera. Wow. So from a usability perspective, I struggled with it a little bit. But what's really cool, I don't know how much you've looked into dual ISO cameras. Oh, yeah, before. yeah. I kind of tried it at NAB. It was really cool. Such a good idea. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, you go inside, you can switch that little switch, and suddenly you still have that same 14 stops dynamic range. It's amazing. So for film production, I can absolutely see it. 800 for interiors, 2500 for interiors, you know, and you don't have to light that stuff yeah. nearly as much. Amazing. Um, the rolling shutter is insanely good on it. And also remember, it's a 5.7K sensor. So uh, what we've seen with cameras like the A6500, where it's super sampling that image, is it's very sharp and there's very little noise in it because you're just grabbing it from a larger overall image, which Mm -hmm. tends to smoosh some of that noise out. Uh, So yeah, the image looks very nice. But after uh, bringing that first bit of footage and after working with GH5 uh, files for quite a while, I was surprised a lot of the LUTs and uh, techniques that I've used to grade GH5 footage didn't work with it. It seems to be quite a different color science, and I'm still really fighting with it. So uh, let's not, this episode I mentioned, our Leica CL review, let's not make that indicative of where I think the image is eventually going to be with this camera, Mm because I'm still coming to grips with the color science on it. Right. Okay. Good to know. Uh, And I I know we're going to spend a long time on these cameras, but uh, I got to talk about the A7R three and the A9 a little bit too, because they are, they're the most interesting to me. Um, because I really like full frame. I know a lot of people go for the GH5. There's a lot of things to prefer about it, but since I'm only really going to, I don't, I already have two different brand systems, so I'm not going to yeah. keep buying new Add ones. A third. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like I need to have at least a PSC, if not full frame um, for, for video. So, uh, and I really am excited by this offering. I'm not going to upgrade to either of them personally. Right. Uh, just kind of because of, of where I am. Actually, no, because of what I'm going to talk about next. Yes. Uh, just about the, about 2018. But, but God, they look so good. Like they've improved the autofocus a bit. Just everything's been bumped a little. And they were already yeah. great. The A7R 2 has been such a good video camera. I've been so happy with it. Um, and that's part of why I'm not upgrading because I'm, I'm still pretty happy with it. And, yeah. um, and, and the, you know, the bumps on, on inequality on both of these, neither, none of it really makes me feel like a must upgrade, but, um, it really looks solid. Like I, I think I can, this is a 
camera I can recommend to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I really think the um, big jump from the Mark I to the two was all about image quality with the R series. And then the 9, we saw something similar. It wasn't really a huge image quality improvement over what we'd seen before from the Sonys. It was more all about the shooting experience. And yeah. then the A7R three is that refined, but for a much broader audience than people who need super fast shooting silently. Totally. I made the comparison on a uh, blog I wrote for um, Digital Photo Pro that this is the 5D Mark III of Sony cameras. You know, that camera that it was announced and everyone was like, yeah, it's nice, but it's not super exciting. But we're going to talk about it eight years later as like, oh, that was such a solid camera that you could do everything with. That's really what this is. Yeah, this will be the most memorable Sony, I think, for a while. Um, And and an interesting fact I saw the other day was this was the least cameras that Sony has ever announced in a year since something like the 90s. In like 20 years, they they announced four cameras this year. And I think at the peak, they announced like 15. Well, it's all upmarket now, right? The Mm -hmm. entire consumer side is gone. So uh, they're just throwing out really high end stuff because that's the only thing that's keeping people interested right now. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. But the A9, um, the 9 for video to me is just, it's still a big miss because no picture profile, no zebras, just these artificial handicaps on it. Yeah. Just seem like a big F you to someone who spends six grand on a camera. Well, and I've really been forgetting about the A9 since the A7R three was announced. Um, I, I was thinking about that so much when it was, and I talked about it quite a bit that I missed picture profiles. But now that the A7R three is in options, like, well, okay. Who needs the nine? I'm not going to spend the extra money to have the less video features. So yeah, for the time being, the R3 is their best video camera for mirrorless, and of course, there's going to be an S something coming out soon. So yeah. we can talk about that for next year. Yeah. Okay, so the the next just general topic for 2018 is I don't know what I'm going to do. Like this is I'm having an existential <laughs> crisis about even buying lenses. Like I I, I was looking at. I don't know. I was just looking at lenses. It's like, oh, maybe I want this. Maybe I want that. And then I started realizing, like, wait, I don't know if I would buy a Canon or a Sony, whether it's for video primarily or for stills. I have no idea which direction to start committing to or even to recommend to other people. I don't have any idea for the first time in, in like, since I started photography, I don't yeah. know which direction I'm going to take in the future. I don't know where I want to be in five years as far as brand ownership. Well, and it's tough because the big photographer brands are still Canon and Nikon are still the big two, uh, just in terms of user base, although Sony's catching up for sales right now. But um, both of those guys haven't shown their hand for mirrorless yet. So there's so many people in that same situation. Like, do you keep investing in these systems or is now the time to really look at jumping ships so you're not behind? Well, and the thing is, they are... They're both doing a good job at everything. Um, it Okay. <laughs> Canon is doing a great job if you want to buy the cameras separately, right? So I, yeah. I do love my 5D Mark IV. I'm still totally happy with it, even though there are some more interesting things coming out of Sony. The, the Canon covers my needs. It's great. And then the Canon C200 is the most exciting video camera to me. So right. I could have those two and, you know, have a really amazing professional setup with a great set of like a a mature lens lineup, you know, Canon has a lot of great stuff. Sigma's making great Canon glass. There's, you know, everything I need is there, but then Sony has a much stronger all in one. Like if I just had two a seven R threes, 
I could do a lot, you know, and, um, yeah. and, and maybe more than I could do with those two larger cameras, like the 5D Mark IV and the C200 combined are the size of four 7 Series cameras, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are struggling. I don't have an answer for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still, uh, it's tough for me because I'm still very much invested in Canon glass because of the Sony focus by wire issue. I want lenses with real focus rings. Yeah. Uh, so even if I was all, uh, right now I'm shooting Panasonic, but if I was all on the Sony platform, I would still be dropping my Canon lenses on there for the focus rings. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm also attached to Canon lenses cause I have them. Um, I do think Sony is less reliable with their lens selection. Like they have really good ones. There's a lot of very nice options, but I don't have that feeling of like, oh, if you just jump into the system, you'll be able to have anything you need. Um, yeah. And that's that's part of the recommending thing to people um, because it's like, okay, you may have to wait for the lens you want to be released. Yeah, I mean, they've really, in the full frame side, sorted that out, I think, this year. Because, uh, you know, if we were talking last year, they had a 24-70-2.8, and that was it for pro zooms right now. Where this year alone they've got now the seventy to two hundred two eight, the sixteen thirty five two eight, the one to four hundred. They've really fleshed out their uh, the twelve to twenty four, fleshed out their pro zoom lens line uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Uh, so I feel like it's almost there. They just have to figure out APS-C, and they've got to uh, get some primes out that aren't all fifty millimeter lenses. Right, right. Okay. Uh, next next topic I got here is lights. Uh, this has also been a, a, oh, a really great time to be interested so in So much fun, yeah. Um, and I was watching a cinematographer database on YouTube the other day. He's he's great. If anybody doesn't watch him, you should. Um, and he was talking about, like, I'm really just not interested in cameras anymore because lighting is moving so much faster. And it's kind of true. Yeah. Like we, we are talking about a lot of great cameras right now, but the changes don't change your world as much as if you invest in some of these new lighting kits. Uh, which ones have you tried this year? Are there any you've actually gotten your hands on? Well, the the Aperture, you lent me recently the, the D300, and I yeah. am very interested in it. I, I'm, I'm thinking about kind of going with the Aperture system and getting a few of those LED, uh, what do you call it, when uh, chip on board? Yeah, the cob lights, yeah. Those are really interesting to me, and and using them was a pretty great experience. Uh, it, that's what you're primarily into as well, right? Yeah, that well, that's my light of the year by far. Is that 300D? I am loving it. Uh, yeah, it's like having an HMI, but I can just use all my photo modifiers because there's no real heat there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the the Leica HMI is something I really enjoy about it. Uh, that you know, an HMI costs five to seven thousand dollars for something similar and has a bunch of limitations like is is more challenging to use and um yeah non-dimmable um they're throwing all that heat around they tend to have a brighter hot spot yeah and just in terms of the quality of light too uh, i was kind of blown away by how much of a magenta cast the joker lights had uh, once i was comparing them to this cob light i'd kind of just ignored it i was like yeah they're daylight but this cob really showed how far they were shifting magenta there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't actually realize there was that shift. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is also a, a tough thing to buy when it's moving quickly too. I did this when all the camera stabilization stuff came out. Uh, so I bought a bunch of Zacuto gear, 
when they first came out with their support systems. And, you know, I spent more money than I needed to on, on rigging. And then within like one or two years, there's all these affordable options that were not as well made. I mean, Zakuto is amazing, yeah. but they were there first. And I, I could have spent a lot less money and still had usable stuff. Yeah, and I I feel like maybe this year was the tipping point for that. Um, like I really, when this kind of output got under two thousand dollars, that's where you know it's in line with how I'd look at a strobe or something like that. Uh, you know, I hope that the, we're not seeing lights of this caliber at four hundred dollars next year, but who knows? Yeah. But it's at the point where yeah, if I were to grab a Joker um, eight hundred a couple of years ago, yeah, I might feel a little chafed. But uh, the thing with that kind of lighting, it's the stuff that cinematographers are using shifts very slowly because there's so much money riding Mm -hmm. on it. They don't dabble with new lights that much. It's more people like you or I who get to, you know, experiment with this and really take advantage of it at the budget end who are reaping all the rewards right now. Oh, totally. And and that's where it's going to change the most is at the, you know, mid lower end. I mean, in, in the lighting world, we're very at the low end, but as far as, you know, normal people, like lights are expensive. Lights are a big investment for anybody thinking about getting into a career, this stuff. Um, but, uh, a few others that I wrote down that I haven't used. Um, have have you looked at the came TV offering They have, uh, I've looked at them. Yeah. I'm hearing great things about those little heads. Yeah. I picked that off of, um, uh, Philip Bloom's top stuff of the year, YouTube video. And it looks like a really nice pack. It's it's cheaper than the Aperture stuff. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the output is like now that we can't really uh, use the same wattage measurements anymore. So I don't yeah. really understand how strong they are without putting them to use. But uh, the kit is, I mean, really affordable. You get three lights for like a thousand bucks. Well, and it's tough because lighting is one of the reasons I love to go to NAB every year. And mm-hmm. I missed it this year. Yeah. So it's yeah tough for me to compare all these lights against each other unless you can actually set one up. You know, we have so many people at the shop trying to get us to pick up their fixtures, but if I can't test it, it means nothing in the lighting world, right? Until I can light a human face with it. The other ones that the the really industry industry ones are from digital Sputnik. Uh, And yeah, they were at NEB and they did, those were basically the only lights used in rogue one. They did everything with these new, Really powerful LEDs. So these are expensive lights. Like their 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 primary digital Sputniks are like seventeen grand. Yeah. But super high output and full spectrum RGB, any color you want, dialed in, controlled by your iPad app. And what was really interesting about the use in Rogue One is this meant that like you can light the whole set with any tone in any part of the scene that you want. So the commentary from the cinematographer about this was like, you know, we had to do a lot less grading in post because the colors were what we wanted them to be on set. Like if we were yeah. able to, you know, add the warm, cool ratios that we hoped for without waiting until something that would traditionally have happened in post, we just lit it that way because it was so easy to get exactly uh, mathematically precise colors. Well, and I think a lot of cinematographers are loving this because I feel like they've felt a little powerless with the power in the post side of things. Right. Yeah. I know that Deacon does the same thing where he uses one light or uh, one LUT and just lights everything the way he wants it on set. Yeah, I've heard that. I want that LUT. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure it's tweaked a little bit after it gets offset. But um, yeah, I think it's really great to be able to have access to those moods while you're on set. 
Um, I tried to do the same thing the last short I shot. Uh, God, it's a couple of years ago now. Um, but a lot of color separation in that, but we were back to gelling for it. So to just have the freedom to have full spectrum color, you know, at the twist of a dial is really amazing. And it's just going to open up more creative flexibility yeah, for everyone. Yeah. And then the, the one other brand is Quasar Science. This is another one I really might buy. They do these LED fluorescent tubes for very mm-hmm. affordable prices. Uh, so for like 45 US dollars, you get a tube full of LEDs, but it looks like a fluorescent and it's uh, high CRI. So it's like 95 CRI and um, uh, dimmable and they have crossfade and uh, they also have RGB ones. And like really like you could, you could fill a warehouse with these for a few thousand bucks. Like you can really light a whole room for not that much money. They can go, each one has a, power outlet on the end of it. So you can just like run them all to extension cords if you want and just put clamps on them. You can just uh, gaff tape them to the ceilings. Like you could, you could really do a low budget, beautiful setup. Or if you want to create your own Kino light, um, they have like modifier packs for that, or you can even build your own where you just yeah, attach. Just four big them together. Yeah. So smart. I love this stuff. Well, and I really see it for just filling in little pockets. I don't know if I'd want to light a scene that way, but there's so many times I'm grabbing one of those small little LEDs just in to fill in a little pocket of light somewhere in a shot uh, or kill a shadow or something. Yeah, It'd yeah. be amazing for that. Totally. And and that's kind of how I'm imagining setting. I'm, I'm hoping to next year kind of redo my studio a bit to make YouTube video creation a little easier. And part of that would be... Um, those would kind of be around the studio's general like fills and adding texture and shape and then getting the something like the aperture or maybe the cames for um, the keys and, and, you know, like the softbox kind of looks. Yeah. If anybody's got any of that stuff, swing up. I want to take a look at it. Yeah. And uh, next audio. Uh, this isn't, this isn't the cameras part of the episode. This is the whatever part of the episode. Right, but um, there, there, there's there's some really nice stuff that came out, and some things I bought and was looking at. Um, so one I've been reading about, I really like the look of the new sound devices, Mix Pre Three and Mix Pre Six, and Mix Pre Ten just came out. Ooh, yeah. wow! Uh, yeah, we became a sound devices dealer at exactly the right point because uh, I was super intimidated by all this stuff. You know, my background is not sound. I'm basically putting myself through sound school right now, figuring it all out. No, you sound great. Yeah, right now, right? Um, But uh, they uh, dropped the mix pre's right after that happened, and it's such an accessible, interesting preamp line. Um, It's kind of a Zoom replay, well, kind of like a Zoom and a Tascam, um, kind of the advantages of both of them, but with an amazing preamp. What I was tweeting about it was like right in front of me right now, actually, I have the Tascam uh, I hope I get this right. This is the uh, DR70D, which is like a four-track portable recorder, similar to the Zoom, right? So you've got a Zoom H5 that you're using right now. This is Tascam's version. Um, that was like 350 bucks. And then over to my other side, I've got a Focusrite uh, 6i6, Scarlet, Scarlet 6i6, which is a like computer USB input thing. So I kind of like leave it on my desk and it's got very nice preamps. It was great. And it was similar price, like 350 bucks. But once I looked at what sound devices is doing, sound devices has a reputation for the best preamps. So it would have, it would give me better preamps than either of these. And it's meant to be either a a USB input recording device or a mobile uh, like video production recording device equally. Like they, yeah. uh, they absolutely embedded every feature to do both of them. 
So it's the same price as my two devices here, but would have done a better job than than either yeah. of them or both of them combined. Like I'd love to trade these two things for the the one, like uh, say Mixbury 3. Yeah, and everyone talks about the preamps, but what gets really neglected is they do an analog limiter. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just love that. unbelievably good. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I've, when we first started playing with it, you can just go from a whisper to a shout and it just rolls it off so naturally. Uh, you're like, oh, that sounds exactly like a TV show. And that's because they've been using those sound device analog limiters on all of the reality TV for years because you know, if everything peaks, they'll save you every yeah. single time. Uh, it's amazing stuff. Okay. The only thing that's going to screw it up is like a gunshot out of the blue. Other than that, it works every single time. It's amazing. Of all the gear I've bought, of all the audio gear I've bought, nothing has had a, uh, a, a hardware limiter like that or yeah. like a, a before the pre wait, does it go before the preamp or it's before the preamp? Yeah. Yeah. So smart. I love it. I feel like it'd be a waste of money to just buy one. I'm, maybe I'll sell these and, and trade up, but they look so great. Yeah, they look great and they sound great. And what a lot of people are neglecting is the Wi-Fi interface for them is really wonderful. They do what? A, I don't even know about that. Yeah, so they've got uh, – you can label all your tracks, do marks while you're recording and stuff like that through your smartphone. No. Okay, so I actually I – was, I was watching a podcaster specifically review the Mix Pre 6 – and he was like, oh, the, the deal breaker for me is that you can't add markers because there's no hardware button for it, Yeah, which the yeah. Zooms have. But Yeah, it's all through the app. Wow. Okay, well, I think I have to get one of those this year. All right. come. I'll hook you up. Try one out for a few days. Yeah, Tell me what you I think. I would love to. Uh, okay. It, I, nobody cares about audio, so we should probably keep going through <laughs> this quickly. But uh, Rode Video Mic Pro Plus, worst name of anything of the year, but uh, the, the best nope, that's mic. The, that's the Olympus <laughs> OMDEM10 Mark III is the worst name. But yeah. this is the second worst name. No, that's pretty, that's pretty bad because I actually couldn't remember that one. And there's another one. What, do you know the name of that Sharp uh, 8K camera that came out recently? Oh, no, I that's already long gone in my brain. Oh, I can't, I can't pull it up fast enough. Yeah, it's the yeah. same kind of like infinite list of... Uh, anyway, okay, so yeah, yeah Rode Video Mic Pro Plus. Um, I love this mic. This this yeah. is such a good on-camera mic. I mean, for vloggers, for, for people just trying to capture good sound as they go around. Like, this has also become my primary uh, shotgun mic. Like, I have a real... Uh, actually, I forget what brand my mic is. Uh, Rode? No. I don't know the road. I have like a good shotgun mic and I run into, yeah. you know, nice preamps that I got. Sounds great. But I started using this for everything because it's so much simpler. I don't need a, it, it's onboard preamps are great. It has all these options. Yeah. I don't need to adapt down from an XLR cable to run into my camera. I don't need a recorder in between. I just like boom that over the subject, put it in the camera and it sounds so good. I've been yeah. incredibly happy with this. Yeah, I've just used it for the first time doing like a little run and gun behind the scenes thing just as a safety net. And yeah, I wound up using it as my primary audio track. It's awesome. The only downside is the size. It's it's yeah. it's giant. But Yeah. And, well, and one other thing, too, is that the uh, audio cable sticks straight out the back. So if you're using a mirrorless camera like a GH5 or a Sony, it's sticking straight into your eyeball. So I actually used a little extension rail on my hot shoe to keep that pushed forward a little bit. Oh, that's funny. I actually didn't notice because I took the cable from the other road, the road, what's it called? Mic, video mic? Like the little one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it has an L. It's just a nicer yeah. cable. I was like, why is, the, why is the cable on the nice mic not as good as the one on the cheap mic? And I just swapped the cables and that's been much better. 
Oh, that's probably more elegant than what I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's also some nice labs that I got. So let's mention them. It was the Aspen Mics uh, lab that I've been using on YouTube videos recently because it plugs into my H1. Um, I, I don't like screwing around with wireless labs very often. I have Sennheisers, but like I, since I'm often just by myself too, it's I can't always monitor the audio as I'm going and there's more risk with transmitting wireless signals. So yeah, both the Aspen one and the Aperture I've been running into my, uh, like I'll put my old iPhone, my iPhone 6 that still had a headphone jack in my pocket and record straight to that. And, and both of those have been like great solutions for, for getting audio on the road. Yeah. Just a quick dirty. So I haven't used the Aspen, but, uh, the road or the apertures I use all the time. They're yeah. great. Yeah. And it, well, and it's important to mention they're under $40, like amazing, yeah. especially yeah. for any, anybody just getting into video. Like this is okay. Yeah. The road video mic pro plus is what you should buy once you have some money worth. Like it's worth putting money into your video setup. But if you're just getting started and you want to say do YouTube videos man, you can just spend 40 bucks and like you're set. These, these mics yeah. are great. It's totally sufficient for that. Yeah. Okay, getting down the list. Um, wow, this is going to be a long episode. Okay, so I got software on here, and uh, I, hadn't, I haven't tried everything here, so I don't know how much I can talk to it. This is actually when I thought Cameron was going to be here. We could talk about it a bit more, but there's been some things that I know are exciting and interesting, so we got, we got to touch it. Um, there's like Affinity for iPad. Yep. It's a video, photo editing software that I'm never going to edit on my iPad, so... I haven't spent time with it, but I know it's worth looking at. And there's just more of these third-party options that are becoming really serious competitors. Like for people just starting out in photography, may never get around to getting Photoshop. Like that that yep. wasn't possible before, and it's becoming a reality. Have you have you used any of these? Uh, so the only ones um, I haven't used Affinity at all. Any of the mobile stuff. I can say this year we've jumped primarily to Capture One. Uh, which really kind of surprised me. That would be kind of the one editing software thing I can really talk about. And it's just for when I am initially import a Sony, Fuji, or Panasonic file, it's a much better starting point than the Adobe software. Well, yeah, that was the next one I have written here. And it's a, a, I'm glad you've tried it because I, oh, I just yeah. haven't had time to touch Capture One. But when I look at it sometimes, I really think like if I had time to screw with my workflow, which I don't, it's looking like I would rather start there than Lightroom. It, the, the, I can see the the image processing tools are just better. Like they, there is so much more power in them. And they also recently added uh, film preset packs, like film emulation packs, which that's yep. how I work in Lightroom. You know, I don't have time to come up with a new look for every single photo. So I often use presets from either Mastin Labs or Visco. And yep. um, now Capture One has ones that look really beautiful. Um, it's, it looks like such a great package. I'm really interested in what they're doing. Yeah, the only thing I wish they could do is pay for the license for what the film is actually emulating. Oh. I just find it easier to organize that way. Right. And that's one thing that I love with some of those other ones. But um, yeah, they're beautiful, like just quickly clicking through them. They're beautiful presets that, again, I haven't messed with as much as I'd like to. I'm just really starting to wade a little deeper into the Capture One workflow. For Chris and I, it was really all about uh, just having a Sony file, the RAWs from the A7R3 oh. open on both. At, and the starting point from Capture One was immediately like, you know, 20 clicks into Lightroom ahead. So my that only, was really the big change. I know that I, for, for processing, my only concern is catalog management. I don't know as much mm -hmm. about like how well does it handle 100,000 photos? 
Yeah. Well, and that's something we'll stretch it over time. I really like it because a lot of my workflow, I'm not archiving for great personal work or whatever. We're doing image quality tests. Yeah. So for me, it's great in that I can direct it to a folder and then toss that folder away and it's gone. I don't have to ever think about it again. Where with Lightroom, a lot of the time I'll be like, boy, I thought I got rid of that whole project a long time ago. And you find it hidden in a drive somewhere or whatever. Uh, so for me, it'll just make organization simpler in terms of losing things successfully, <laughs> which is kind of terrifying. I also got to touch on Lightroom. They made some updates this year that are important. Uh, it, like, first of all, they did Lightroom. Uh, wait, I already forgot what it's called. Lightroom CC uh, yeah. and then Lightroom Classic. And I am not going to there. There's no way I'm ever switching to CC. So it kind of doesn't yeah. exist to me. Mm-hmm. I get why they need to move in that direction. Uh, the world is gradually moving towards that. I totally understand Adobe like needs to be there, but there are so many features stripped out of it. And for any professional, you still need local storage. So eh, I, you know, who cares? But they made a really important update to Classic in that now it can import and, and prepare previews much more quickly, like yeah. massive, massive improvements in that initial speed, which is a huge bottleneck for us before. So I was really, really glad to see that. Yeah. That's the big standout for me as well. That's um, one of the reasons that we started dipping our toes into capture one in the first place. Um, and it's a huge improvement. I think it's really necessary. It's not quite enough to drag me back over now that we're starting the shift, but it was totally necessary. And we've touched on it before, uh, actually on our best and worst of that's going to be released soon, but we were really expecting when they moved over to a subscription service that you'd have these constant small updates. And what we've been seeing is more just like what it used to be like with the old CCs, major updates every year and a half, and then a lot of bug fixes and stuff. Right. So I just feel like it's not living up to the potential of a subscription service where they could constantly be dumping cool stuff on us. I don't you know. know. I, de- I think it depends which app you're looking at because Lightroom has been failing at it. I mean, totally yeah. falling flat. But I, I do feel like Premiere has been it's been having more often interesting updates, for example. Yeah, I, I, Premiere is certainly one of the standouts. Um, After Effects and Photoshop, though, seem to be, you know, major yeah. updates are quite few and far between. Yeah, true. Uh, and then I, I have to mention uh, Pixelmator, I don't, the other app I don't know anything about, but I should have mentioned. So I just said it. All right. I've heard people talk about it on DP Review Forums. I'm sure it's great. Yeah, it's important <laughs> in some way. Okay. Uh, then I've got a miscellaneous section. Uh, DJI Spark was amazing. Uh, my, it's my favorite drone. It is super cheap as far as they go. And hmm. it lo- just amazing. I can't believe how well it works, how good the video looks out of it. I mean, it's only 1080, but it's so good. And yeah. just having the size get shrunk down lets, makes it so much more usable. Like I, I, I use it way more often than when my Phantom just because I can bring it with me. Yeah, well, and it's so much less obtrusive too because, I mean, here in Canada, doing any kind of drone stuff legally is very, which, well, nearly impossible yeah, without a, an SFOC now. Yeah. yeah, which is all that we ever do, of course. Yeah, all legal, all the time. Uh, Or if you're traveling or anything like that. So at the very least, you're not horribly obtrusive while you're trying to get some stuff done. I mean, for work, I'm still saying hire a drone up, but for personal projects, it's it's just opens up so many cool possibilities. And especially drone footage, it's at its best when you can get close to something. And when you got something that small and that light, it's a lot easier to track alongside interesting locations without... Too much stress. Well, and, and for me, actually, especially it's travel that if I go somewhere, 
you know, far and remote that I can bring it with me because those bigger ones can really be a, a burden. Yeah, that's your entire second bag if you're traveling. Yeah. Uh, another little one, the small HD focus monitor. Uh, I didn't buy it, but I loved it in NAB. It's just tiny little five inch monitor for a really reasonable price. I love small HD. I'm just, this was a hole in the market. I was glad to see filled this year. Well, you mentioned the 6,500 and this is exactly the thing that's yeah, going to make yeah. all those cameras usable. Totally. And yeah, uh, just stick it on top. The only drawback is it's proven so popular that I think we're like five months back ordered on no. them at the shop. Oh, so I didn't yeah, know you just can't get them right, right now. Uh, it's a travesty, but uh, they're beautiful monitors. Yeah. If you ever get one. All right, let's hit the main topic before we run yes. out of time. This is the this is just the like best camera of the year. This could interpret that how you will. Here here's the list I wrote down. Tell me what I'm missing, and then let's talk about some, right. some specifics. So I got the Sony A9, yep. the Sony A7R3, the Nikon D850. Mm-hmm. The, this this one this is from your list, the Fuji XT20. Love it. And the Leica M10. Yeah, we. Uh, that's. Yeah, that's on. There. You just sent me a text list, so I don't know what yep. you said about it. And totally, is that it? That can't be it. Uh, those were all mine. Okay. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I maybe it's it feels like not because there's no Canon on it. Like there's something wrong here. But Canon just didn't release a, a competitor this year. So you know, in my mind, this is all r- referencing. A, I'm comparing it to the 5D4, um, but yep. but that was not released this year. But it's still what I shot on for 2017. So in my mind, sure. the 5D4, it's a, it's. It's an important 2017 camera. Every brand isn't going to update flagships every year. So, you know, that's still the Canon that was getting sold. All right. Well, we'll talk about all of these best cameras of the year as they compare to a 5D Mark IV. Sure. Yeah. How, how do they all crush <laughs> Canon? Uh, no. Okay. But so where do you want to start? All right. Well, let's start. Um, I think the A9 is a really interesting one because it points forward to where I think photography is going right now, which is almost global or eventually global shutters that are totally silent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's weird having a camera with no haptic feedback. It really is. But shooting any kind of action or especially concert and event stuff with it, you really feel like, oh yeah, this is absolutely the future while you're doing it. That really jumped out at me when I first got my hands on it is that feeling of silence of nothing happening at all. Like, you can miss it that you're taking photos. The response, the the way you see feedback on the screen is relatively subtle. I mean, not too subtle. Like, yeah, you're going to get used to it. It's fine. But um, if you turn the sound off, like you don't know whether you're shooting or not, which is kind of the way it is on a, no, actually on a phone, you, you get a, a blackout. You know, if I take, yeah. if I take photos on my iPhone, there's more response than on the A9. Yeah, which is well, they've added a few different things around the frame to make it a little less jarring when that's happening. I keep saying I think it would have been a genius touch for them to just add a shutter sound through headphones. So if I was shooting a wedding or something like that, oh, I'm getting that click, but I'm still totally silent. I think that would make a ton of sense or just like a single earbud or something. Yeah. But it's still it's not a terribly well-rounded camera Mm -hmm. you know like the video features were clearly handicapped on it the image quality is great it's fine but it's not a huge step forward in the way that some other cameras have been um so for that it wasn't quite my top pick of the camera but it's a huge like everybody pay attention this is where it's going what i did think about is for for event photography like let's say i'm hired to shoot kanye's wedding or whatever like some like really important thing this is what i would take to any yeah. really critical event. This is what I choose over everything now. I mean, the, like the, the uh, 1DX, like I love Canons. I've, I've, I've shot with the 1D series for a few years. I really like it. 
But yeah. when you strip down the size to, to the A9 and you go all silent with so few disadvantages to that silence, wow, like this is such a compelling event camera. I mean, for weddings, like this, this is the wedding camera now to me. I, I don't even know if I'd be interested in anything else if that was my primary job. Well, and I keep saying, like, if someone was looking at me, a high-end wedding photographer who's charging, you know, four to five grand per shoot, um, and, you know, for an extra 500 bucks, I'll shoot it silently, everyone's <laughs> going to say, give me the silent wedding, right? Is that a thing? No, but <laughs> everyone should be jumping on it. Right now, someone yeah, yeah, in yeah. Calgary should be getting on that. Um, okay, well, the natural next thing to talk about is the A7R three, And I know we're not giving out awards for cameras of the year, and I know I also haven't tried one, but you have. But, like... This is going to be it to me. This is is the most interesting camera of the year. Yeah. The, it's the camera that, like we said, we're going to look back on this as the shift for Sony. And I was mm-hmm. saying this w- with all my reviews around the two. I'm like, we're almost there. Like, we're about to, to start saying that you really can switch from, from Canon Nikon to Sony. This is the camera yeah. that makes it a real possibility. Yeah, Chris and I argued a lot, which is, again, in our video that's coming up, but this is my pick for camera of the year. Yeah. Uh, there's no type of job I feel like I couldn't accomplish with this camera. Yeah. Well, one thing I had heard that could still prevent me from committing to it would be that it. I heard it just still isn't as responsive as a Canon. And that was my biggest issue by far with the A7R II is like waiting for cameras to write to card, waiting for playback, like just waiting and waiting and waiting. It's better, but not quite there. Is that what I'm... It feels exactly like the A9 is what I'd liken it to, okay. So, which I know that you did spend some time with. So my only problem is as someone who's, if you're shooting and then quickly want to flip to video, you have to wait for that buffer to finish writing. Okay. Um, other than that, now we can go into the menus, the quick menus. We can still work and play back while it's still writing to card. Does it have a, wait, what do you call it? The Q, uh, SQ button? QS, SQR? Yeah, S and Q button. Yeah, that one. That's on there? That's on there. Awesome. Uh, and it has the My Menu, which is invaluable, I think, with the Sonys. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's well thought out. Cool. Yeah, the, I, I could go on and on about the little things, like adding the finger, the thumb button. Uh, what do you call those? The joystick, the nipple. Yeah, the joystick, the huge battery. Um, oh, yeah. Again, that, yeah. that amazing electronic viewfinder with no lag on it. All of it just, I miss having that amazing EVF when I use an optical viewfinder right now, which is something I never thought I'd say. Yeah. And so like, this is the camera that makes me not know what to tell people. Like it's, I think it's the only advice I can give now if for everybody that's asking me, like if you're going to commit to a system, which that's the biggest consideration. Like a lot of people, when they're buying their first camera, they're more worried about the exact camera they're going to buy of the A6500 or the SL2. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, but in reality, you should be more worried about what system are you buying into? Like, why are you buying full frame lenses? Are you buying cropped lenses? Are you buying Sony lenses or Canon lenses? Like that's the stuff that's going to matter so much more in the long run. And for that, like, you got to go feel it out. You got to play around with them. You you probably have to rent them, I think. Like, people have to take these cameras home, mm-hmm. especially for the higher-end ones. Like, I wouldn't want to buy a three or $4,000 camera without actually shooting with it first. Well, and that was the tough thing with mirrorless for a while, too, is none of them were in rental houses. And that's all starting to change this year as well. Right. So that gives you the possibility of actually testing that stuff out. Oh yeah. The big missing thing on the A7R three for me though, is still what this, what you said was uh, a medium raw format, right? Yeah. It needs it. Yeah. 
and it's not there yeah. yet. That that is that is a huge problem. I mean, right now with my five D four, I'm actually shooting. Okay, people are going to kill me for this. I'm shooting medium raw more often than than full size. Um, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Kind of crazy, but like it's just not what I need most of the time. I'm like, I know this is all web usage. I know it's never going to be bigger. I just I could use. 30% more space out of my memory card. Uh, most of these photos are going to get deleted anyway. And just a few selects that are going to go on the internet. You do lose some dynamic range. The highlights do not come back as much. So you're giving something up, but it's worth it. Like I just don't, most of the time I don't need that. Well, and they just need to give you the option. The only other thing is too, they've got to figure out a lossless compressed raw right. with uh, the Sony cameras. Cause those files are just, I think we're looking at like 85 megs per file on an R3. It's mm-hmm. lunacy. So wait, wait, sir. We need lossless or lossy lossless compressed, which oh, lossless is what your Canon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is what your Canons and Nikons do. Um, and yeah, it saves you a ton of space and there's no image quality penalty. I don't know why they haven't done it. Well, wait, wait, then what, how, how does the raw work right now? Cause it's, comp- it, it's like a lossy compressed raw. Like it's like not, there's a lower bit rate and stuff. That's the default. Yeah, you can use either lossy compressed or lossless uncompressed, which are those huge files. But um, yeah, Canon, uh, Nikon, and Pentax all do a uh, compressed lossless file, which is usually about two-thirds the size, but with no image quality penalties. Right. That does sound like it should happen, but all the comparisons I've done with the A7R2 and the 5D Mark IV were using the lossy compressed yep. on the Sony and comparing it to the lossless compressed on the Canon and the Sony still kind of beat it yeah. even then. Like I've, I've zoomed in on those comparisons of when you're using the two file types and like there is a difference, but it is hard it's to marginal spot. for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. Th- that's still fair to criticize them. Okay. Another huge one um, that I'm not paying any attention to. So you got to walk me through it. The Nikon D850 from everything I hear, this is the best digital SLR ever made. Probably. Yep. Hands down. Best yeah. best image quality, amazing feature set. Like this blows everything out of the water, right? Yeah. I want Cameron to play with this camera and hear his feedback yeah. on it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an incredible focus. Like it is a do everything SLR, much like the 5D is, but also with class leading image quality. Right. Yeah. yeah. In which in which ways does it crush the 5D Mark IV? Well, I mean, resolution-wise, it's a 45-megapixel body, So, um, but with the medium and small RAW as an option on it. The dynamic range is unreal on it, especially because it can shoot 64 ISO. And so is it that same sensor as the A7R3s? Cause they, they, no. They updated it's a total, it? Okay. It's a totally unique sensor exclusive to this camera. Huh. And what's really cool about the ISO 64, it is a native, so it's soaking up as much light as a medium format camera at 100. Hmm. So same dynamic range generally speaking amazing yeah i mean you know i i'm never gonna buy an icon but this sounds really cool you know if i was starting from scratch really looking to become a professional um it's an amazing high end well, and it's uh, it's funny to think back. It wasn't that long ago when the Nikon D800 came out, and we actually did have a lot of Canon shooters switching yeah, that time, yeah. uh, which did not happen. 
this time. This is a camera for Nikon shooters, you know, while we're waiting for the mirrorless camera or whatever. Like, it's keeping people into that system right, right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's an amazing camera. Uh, it does everything well. And what I find interesting, there's a lot of stuff that's live view exclusive, uh, like cool focus stacking and stuff like that, that you know they're just prepping it for their full-frame mirrorless camera that's so, coming out this so year. So who's going to get it right first for the high-end mirrorless Canon or, or Nikon? I I think I've said this a few times. I think Nikon's going to go with a dedicated system from the ground up, like Sony did, um, full frame mirrorless. I think Canon's going to make a DSLR without a mirror. Right. Same lens mount, same everything. That's part of my concern about what Canon's going to do is they're just going to take zero risks. I feel like, which that's the only way Sony was able to get on top like this. Like they they, they weren't the best the first year. You know, like a lot of people. A lot of people are still interested in the A7 because the price is low, but like I wouldn't buy one, the, the first one. I, I feel like they didn't start getting it right until round two. And really now round three, they're, they're knocking it out of the park. But, um, you know, Canon's going to come in with something really conservative. You know, it's going to take them years to get it right. And if they do it all. So it's, it's so funny because it reminds me so much of when they brought out the EF mount. And they took that huge gamble, and it paid off. Totally, um, yeah. I don't think I don't think they're a company that can make that kind of risk anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, for people that don't know the story, like that's how Canon got its lead. Is that in the what early '90s or late '80s they decided to scrap their whole lens system so that uh, your old lenses were no longer compatible, and this is something Nikon did not do. Nikon kept all their old lenses compatible, and because of this, it gave Canon a autofocus lead for. A decade um, that nobody could get close to um, because of that EF mount. And, and so, yeah, then this is just classic, like innovators dilemma, you know, Canon uses its innovation to find, I mean, create that lead and then they don't know how to do it again. And then they did it again too with the 5D Mark II and adding video to it and then having no idea how to capitalize on that. It's a very different corporate culture, I think, than it used to be. Yeah. So we'll see. But that's my guess for sure. I'm putting my money down on that. So you also put down the Fuji X-T20, which we've already talked about a bit. Uh, how, how does that fit into best camera of the year? I think it's just best bang for the buck in terms of great handling with a great lens system. And they, sh what I like about that camera so much is they shaved off a lot of stuff that, yeah, it's nice to have, but doesn't fundamentally change your shooting experience. So it really is a tiny flagship Fuji camera. That's, you know, a good approachable price for a lot of consumers, hobbyists, things like that. So is this what I should be telling people to buy that like, are just, you know, hobbyists that won't be going pro and want to spend this price. What is the price? Like over a bit over a thousand, just over a thousand. Yeah. yeah. I think it's 1100 in Canada right now. Uh, yeah, but it's really between this and the 6,500 and there, my question is just how interested in video are you? Right. If they're into video, Sony 6,500, if they're not, then the Fuji X-T20 and they'll save 600 bucks as well. Oh, okay. That's, that's not insignificant. And yeah, to me, no. the A6500, I think about primarily as a video camera. That's by far what's most interesting about it to me. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. And then you also have the Leica M10 written here, which I don't know why you put it in here, but Hey, I, this cam, this camera looks amazing. So, uh, how did it end up on your list? 
Uh, I shot with it. <laughs> That's pretty much everybody's consensus. It feels like a film, like a finally yeah. after ten years of these fat brick-like heavy things. Um, yeah, this one—it's a nice slim body. The shutter has that great kind of an M6 sort of click to it. It's very discreet. You know, it's completely impractical. It's not a good use of dollar to performance yeah, or anything what, like that. What kind of prices do we see on this? I think it's about nine grand Canadian okay. for a body yep. right now. But uh, so where they've always been with those digital mm-hmm. Leicas, but it's a very unique, fun shooting experience. I always felt with the digital Leicas, it was like, yeah, it's kind of halfway to what it was like shooting with a film Leica. This one feels like the real deal for the first time. So I felt like it's not something I'm going to recommend to very many people, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of just the joy of taking pictures once in a while. It's fun to throw a camera on there that really recaptures that feeling again. And this camera totally does. If you have the means. Yeah. Or just, you know, um, all the time there's those Leica clinics around town where you can go try one out. Like, yeah, wherever you are in the world, take them up on that. Cause it's just a great way to spend an afternoon shooting with that camera. Oh man. I, I've never wanted a Leica more. It, it, it's always easy to find a, a reason like I, I kind of drool over them, look at them online. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that's the thing I'll save up for someday. And then I read the specs. I'm like, oh, you know, something's just off about it. It's like it, it wouldn't actually be as great because if you're spending yep. that much money on a, a luxury product, I mean, that is why they are expensive. Is because it's luxury, and that's yep. that's okay. That that can exist, but you don't want to feel like you're giving too much up. And yep. this time, it feels like, wow, I would be so satisfied with this. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we threw it on our list. But do not let it impact your quality of life in any way. (laughs) You you want to be very comfortable. Exactly. Before you jump on this. Cool. Well, um, we did it. That was a lot of stuff. That was a lot of gear of the year. Thanks. uh, I I thought you were going to lose me towards the (laughs) end. Yeah, well, yeah, you you should go rest and uh, just take the rest (laughs) of the holidays off. Uh, Yeah, you can look forward to our holiday episode is coming up pretty quick. The one that it may have put me in this state. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I always dig coming on the show. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for having me again this year. Yeah. And again, if anybody hasn't seen it before, the Camera Store TV, if you Google it, it'll come up all over the place. So that should be on our t shirts. The Camera Store, we come up all over <laughs> the place. <laughs> and thanks for joining me. See you later, Jordan. Of course. Later, man.